Hello everyone and welcome to Designing the Future. I'm Jim Anderton, Multimedia Content Director here at Engineering.com and I'm looking forward to a very interesting conversation about an industry that's both relevant and topical these days, the energy sector. Joining me is John Nixon, he's Energy and Utilities Global Strategy Lead for Siemens Digital Industries Software. Prior to joining Siemens, John spent over 27 years in the energy and utilities industries and created multiple energy industry startups in China, Romania, Panama and the US. John has also led large greenfield and brownfield projects in oil and mining companies in Canada and China and holds patents in pipeline technology. John was an officer in the U.S. Army and is a degreed civil engineering graduate from Texas A&M. John, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Uh, John, uh, the energy sector, it's, it, it's, it's always been topical. It's been topical you know, for, for, for over 50 years since the oil crises, for sure, in the 70s. More so now because of, of green initiatives and because of, of issues, of course, in pricing and demand. But we're talking software information. The, the fundamental question I have to ask is we live in an information-saturated world now. We're talking about connected devices. We're talking about 5G. We're talking about satellite connectivity. We're, we're, we're moving information rather than moving BTUs of energy through a pipeline or even, even current through a wire at this point. Where do these things converge? Is the energy industry basically at the level of, say, the telecom industry in utilizing this sort of connectivity? Absolutely. Um, you know, you're finding such a, a tremendous data density and, and data volume that's being generated in this space. Um, you, you know, look at what's going on right now. We've got COVID. We've got commodity compression. Uh, we've got, um, you know, capital expenditures that are being hollowed out and so forth. So there's not only a huge amount of data being generated in this space, but there are tremendous, you know, events and tremendous volatility in this space which again affects how much data is being generated and in more than just all of that data and, and the maturity around it. Uh, what about the analytics of that data, right? How do we use that uh, as a strategic advantage in this industry uh, as we look at these challenges that we have in front of us today? Yeah, it's uh, industries like manufacturing, for example, they have some concerns about, about being saturated with data. Uh, you have data-enabled devices feeding information back on such a vast scale that there becomes a, a problem with the time value of that information. Can you aggregate it in a timely enough way that you can make decisions with it? Is that a factor in energy? It, it is, um, and which is why you see such a focus on, let's say, cloud-native development of applications, right? The ability, if you will, to almost dial up or dial down MIPS or FLOPS on demand. So, you know, you need computational power in the cloud um, of course, you know, where I'm at uh, here at Siemens, I mean, that's a big focus for us, right? That's a big development area. That's a, a strong partnering area that we have with others in this in this space. So energy and utilities, um, uh, you know, like you said earlier, comparatively to other industries, while the perception is we are a laggard industry, and it has been that case, you know, for many decades. I mean, I've been in this almost now for three decades, and I can attest to the fact that energy moves more slowly than other energy, uh, other industries uh, when it comes to digital adoption, but that's changed here. In the last five to eight years, the changes I've seen, the rate at which I've seen digital investments because of the data challenge that we have in energy has really changed our focus. And again, to your point, the ability to manage and to have the computational power is driving this industry to the cloud. 
Uh, John, it's, we talk about network effects. Uh, it's in some ways energy is the original network. It goes back to really to the days before telecom, even the birth of railroads even at this point. Uh, pipelines moving energy. Uh, the wellhead was never conveniently located close to the market for, 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 for petroleum products in particular, as, as well as gas. Uh, that infrastructure and the supply chain that evolved around that evolved before any notion of computation or even of data analysis that way. Is that a constraint or is, is that an advantage? Or how, how do you work around that situation of hundreds of thousands of miles of pipeline out there and some need to say actively monitor what's happening in it? Well, and you know, it, this is a global challenge. I mean, to your point, this is this has been a one of the original networks that was developed uh, in North America, in Europe, and so forth. And is it you know a growing challenge really globally as these networks build upon one another? You have legacy pipelines, you have newer pipelines. Uh, of course, you have nodes such as refineries and plants. And as you said, you know, wellheads are never, you know, the supply never seems to be conveniently located near demand. Um, these kind of network effects uh, add to that complexity of this environment. Add to that, we're also in transition. So, you know, we've got these fossil-based networks, if you will, and now you're starting to see emerge, um, you know, this trend of electric vehicles and the demand that's going to put to now create another energy network, right? A grid that's even more tasked to support this ever-growing electrification that's going on of our of our economies. So it's going to be an interesting and, quite frankly, exciting time. I I, mean, I know we're in a time right now where it's COVID and there's a lot of frowns out there and a lot of remote working and so forth. But I, I tend to find smiles and in all these frowns. I mean, COVID has forced us to press a fast forward button. Uh, the demand for a future that is more clean is focusing our efforts and again, pressing that fast forward button. So we have challenges around changing energy infrastructure, as you would say, another network on top of the old fossil network that's in place. Um, and then of course, what about all the challenges now that come to make sure, you know, to support other industries like the EV industry, electric vehicle industry, which is going to create even more demand on those networks. So it's going to be a very challenging time for us in energy in that regard. Uh, John, on the on on exploration, the, the primary production side, um, there there are several investments, specifically the investment community will often say, I don't watch ExxonMobil, I watch Halliburton. And that if, if I'm going to try and predict what's happening in the future, one thing that I think that they're, we're seeing is that the estimate is, is that margin, there's margin compression. Margins are getting tighter. We're looking at a potential future of relatively flat demand growth, flat to, to modest demand growth for, for petroleum products, uh, costs increasing, margins decreasing. Uh, on the supply chain side of this, is, this, is, is, this, is there a defensive strategy using software that the supply chain side, that the Halliburtons and the Schlumbergers of the world, the people making the downhole tooling, for example, how do they protect themselves and then stay, stay basically profitable enough to keep that massive network going? Well, and that also then begs the question of, when I make digital investments, what is the line I draw um, from what I coin as a term from molecule to margin, right? So if I make digital investments and I have, let's say, a, a molecule, a hydrocarbon molecule in the subsurface, how do I look at its life cycle all the way from, you know, exploration, production, transportation, storage, refinement, and final delivery, right, and use? And then what does that mean to shareholder return? And that's been a big challenge also in digital, is to look at 
I make these investments in digital. I've already got compressed margins. I mean, you're looking at e e EPC companies. There's engineering firms out there operating on 1% and 2% net margins, right, that are losing money now because of the current volatility in the market from COVID and CapEx compression. And so the real question is, I know I'm going to have to innovate. I can't save my way out of this crisis. I'm going to have to innovate my way out of this crisis. So when I make these investments in digitalization, what is my return on that investment? So what we're working on right now, what I personally am and really focused on is what is a molecule to margin supply chain understanding. And it, it applies to everything. Look at wind. Anytime a wind molecule strikes a blade and turns that turbine, right? How do I trace its value all the way to shareholder return, all the way to margins? And how does the digital world that I put in place to, let's say, orchestrate that data? right? Remove the friction from when the data is created to when it's orchestrated. It goes from what this person to the next, from design to construction, from construction to operations. If it's IoT data, you know, how am I going to do rapid analytics, predictive maintenance based on that data and generate more production and make sure that, that mo those molecules that are providing me my origination of value make it all the way to the margin, which is the recognized value financially. So that's a real challenge. The Schlumbergers, the Halliburtons, um, you know, your wind turbine uh, manufacturers and and wind farm um, operators, right? Um, solar PV. I mean, you name the energy type, right? Name the form of energy. I'll tell you what molecules they're looking at and how to trace it all the way to the margin on the balance sheet. That's what we have to do as, as an industry. Uh, John, energy in general and uh, uh, not just hydrocarbons, even electricity, there's a large amount of inertia intrinsic to any sort of network effects that go, go nationwide. Uh, uh, manufacturing's been very, very good now at basically tuning supply and demand, tuning the processes in such a way with just-in-time delivery, uh, that, um, carrying minimal inventories. Uh, when a barrel of oil goes into Cushing, it better get out of Cushing too. It's very hard to shut a refinery down like, 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 like throwing a switch at this point. And we see, of course, the effects of that uh, in the market, in supply-demand disequilibria, in, in pricing swings that are not strictly, strictly demand-driven at this point is on the software side, it can, can, can we use data basically to try and smooth that, that, those ripples out of the system? I mean, the, the, of course, the, the short answer to that is yes, right? Um, what I would say is you had um, a good example of the transformation we're seeing right now in energy. Uh, uh, Brian Ferguson, back in 2015, when we had uh, you know another crisis, right, in 2014 with the, the collapse of oil, he made the statement, we need to execute our capital projects uh, with a manufacturing mindset. And what and that was an articulation that really was pervasive in the industry and is today that we have to bring into everything we do, capital projects, operating, you know, equipment. What why have we seen continued productivity gains in manufacturing and yet when it comes to productivity in the energy space, uh, it remains fairly flat. We have to change that. And so the investments you've seen in the last five to eight years have been to do just that. In fact, the interesting thing that we're starting to hear from a lot of energy super majors and majors um, is talk to me about model-based systems engineering. Now, you know, systems engineering, uh, you know, for the sake of our audience, you know, if, if I just want to take all my different design disciplines, right, and I want to bring them all into a single ecosystem, right, when it comes to design, fabrication and manufacture, um, and then eventual, you know, delivery to the market. When I, when I think about the systems in place to be able to make that happen, that's quite a daunting task. And now we're driving it from a model-based perspective. 
So when you think about the way in energy we develop systems and systems of systems, i.e. what we call a plant, and then how we operate those, we've never done that with a manufacturing mindset. And so now we're driving a more systems focus, right? We're looking at all of the elements in the supply chain and looking at all of those disciplines coming together in a single ecosystem that has security and transparency, uh, and most importantly, is well orchestrated so that, you know, for example, when you look at the energy business, right, it's a very safety conscious business, right? We have explosions, leaks, uh, unscheduled emissions, outages. There's all these challenges that we could possibly face, right, that, that affect both safety of individuals, communities, as well as environmental stewardship. You know, when there is an upset condition that occurs of any of any degree, what are the what is the challenge to forensically go back, look at what's occurred, and make sure that a you don't repeat that again, or b how do I improve uh, going forward with the next design and so forth, so that's not even a, a factor in the future. So, you know, one of the things we've uncovered in energy, when we go through these forensic efforts, is we have very we have poorly orchestrated data. There's very little traceability. You know, I'll give you an example. You know, you've had a pipeline uh, release or explosion. Um, it's found that there was crack propagation in the welds. Okay, so now the question is, um, uh, who performed the weld? Were they trained on the welding procedure? Did we use the right materials? Were the materials, uh, you know, kept dehydrated so we don't, you know, we didn't introduce moisture into the welding process? I mean, and the list goes on and on. Was it x-rayed? You know, so you go through and you find that there's something like 300 plus data points associated with any one weld. And so when you want to go back and look at the, the effects of what caused this failure, if you don't have well-orchestrated data, that's, that includes both IoT data as well as all of your design and installation data. All of that's holistically what affects that, that single weld. And then imagine how many welds there are in these plants. Imagine all of the work that's been done. You know, this is the kind of daunting challenge that we have to address when it comes to digital investments here in energy utilities. This is what leads to improvement, continued success, margin improvement, and so forth is, again, how do we manage? You've, you've brought this up. Right? When you talk about the volume of data, you look at volume and velocity of data. If we don't have it well orchestrated, we're going to find ourselves not, you know, we're not going to be making the necessary advances that we have to have in this industry from a digital perspective. I look at this as, you know, for our industry, you know, civilization runs off of energy. The reliable, um, Unstop, uh, you know, the, the reliable continuous supply of energy in whatever form it is, is imperative to our future. And it's imperative that we not just look at IoT. It is IoT, right? That constant data stream, but it's everything before that that led to us having that system or that system of systems providing that energy. I've got to keep it always on. I've got to keep it highly productive. And it is, it's an entire life cycle. And that needs to be the focus when it comes to data investments. What is my life cycle around data in energy? Because that's what we've been doing in manufacturing. That's what we need to do in energy. Uh, John, you mentioned model-based systems engineering. And uh, one phenomenon that we're observing out of this is the ability to iterate faster. Progress happens faster 
directly as a result of model-based systems engineering. Not just a matter of aggregating data and acting on it, but the fact that we can even think about designing things in a different way with, with, with MBSE. Now you brought up uh, the, the well, the pipeline example is, is a really excellent one. Uh, safety critical, so highly regulated. So there's the AWS standard, there may be an ASTM standard. Uh, if the aerospace industry has been hobbled in terms of progress because the regulatory side of the industry can't keep up, with the progress that's that's rapidly accelerating on the design side. And they're constantly appealing to regulators to say, for God's sake, approve our new process, our new production process. We'll make safer, better airplanes if you do. And the regulators, the regulatory side is saying, well, you know, prove it to us first. And in five years, we'll form a committee and we'll, we'll get back to you. And they're sort of in some ways acting as a break on that level of progress. Is, are we on the engineering side pulling ahead faster then that regulatory side can keep up in the, in the energy industry. Well, and I, and I think what you're getting at is technology always leads, um, you know, regulations in, in many ways. And so what ends up happening is um, regulators are always playing catch up uh, to the latest technologies that are there. Um, what, I, what I would say is uh, what I've been focused on and what my company has been focused on is to that, that, that challenge right there, you need to make sure that as, as, as both industry standards and government regulations rise, like entropy, right, it's always increasing, um, how do you ensure that your design uh, process and subsequent, you, you know, your, op your operating processes, but let's focus on design for a moment. How do you make sure that your design processes are driven by regulations? And so, you know, we've looked at the market and, and we've now created capabilities. And again, I'm not just trying to talk about my company, but what you're seeing in the industry um, is a drive to have requirements-driven design, right? Where with a rules-based engine, right, where you've actually brought in all of this myriad of regulations, you're able to then allow yourself to take your cadre of engineers, you know, and, and again, in this post-COVID world, you're probably working with a leaner crew, so you've got to be able to perform at the same level you had when you had a much, you know, larger headcount, uh, you've still got to be able to deliver, but make sure that you're compliant with the myriad of specifications and regulations that are coming out. So you've got to have um, a, a rules-driven, a regulation-driven design process where, for example, it might turn out that I have to have a specific type of gasket on a flanged connection. And so I've got a library of gaskets I can pick from. And so as an engineer, I go to pick one. I need to know that the system's going to catch me and say, no, 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 no. Uh, as of a recent regulation or a recent specification change, um, you're only allowed to pick from these. And so you have this kind of guided design process. Now, you know, you mentioned earlier um, uh, in, in the conversation um, some challenges that we have that, that brought to my mind that what you also need in this space is to take out human bias. So you've got regulatory and, specif and specifications that are out there driving and let's say putting a box around your design process, right? Now within that box of design, what if I could fully explore um, innovations in design, but take the human bias out? So what's also been a major investment uh, in this space for energy utilities is what's called design space exploration. And so uh, there were, like, for example, you know, uh, there was a company called Red Cedar that became part of our family. And there was a couple of professors out of Michigan State that had come up with this very powerful algorithmic uh, driven capability to say, I'll tell you what, let's create parameters to all the variables for design, you know, material type, material thickness, uh, diameters, housing, you know, um, uh, roughness of in, internal flow, of all, you know, viscosity. I mean, just name a, any kind of variables that you might have in your system design. 
And here's what we're going to do. Give me the, 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 the low and the high. Give me the parameters. Give me the limits of, of, of the variable. And then I'll take all of those hundreds and thousands of variables and I'll tie my simulation together with my design and everything. And I'm going to step back and I'm going to let the machine run through not just three or four different potential design variations. I'm going to let it run through 30 or 40,000 design variations. And instead of looking for, say, one optimal design, Let's look at a basket or a range of optimal designs that we can we can choose from. And I'll tell you what, we're seeing firsthand revolutionary designs where when you take out the human bias and you're looking at parts, and you know, you mentioned aerospace. We have a great example of this where uh, there's some landing gear and there were some parts to that landing gear that we we applied this design space exploration to. And the design it came up with, nobody would have guessed. Now, here's the interesting thing. When you remove human bias from the design process, and and you 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 create you know you have human parameters you have limits on that but you take out the bias and you come up with these unique designs oftentimes you'll find well i can't really forge that by hand or create that in an economic way except now we have 3d printing right now we have an industrial scale ability to actually additively manufacture uh these components so now i combine design space exploration with additive manufacturing and i've opened up a whole new world of design capabilities and again removing that human bias it's amazing the kind of designs that are evolving now that are going to transform our world in energy and utilities yeah. uh, uh electricity um electric cars widely touted at this point a fundamental shift in transportation uh there's some questions about um do we have the grid capacity in fact to support a wholesale switch like that. Uh, at the same time, we've got pressure to decentralize some of the some of the generation distribution, you know, technologies that we've taken for granted for for a hundred years. Is this an area where this kind of simulation basically comes into play? Because there has to be an equilibrium between basically grid capacity, surge capacity, if you will, so large centralized generation distribution, and every home having photovoltaics on the roof, attempting to supply their own needs, attempting to feed power backwards through the grid. I mean, in history, we've never had a situation where we expect that the actual product to flow in both directions, from the producer to the consumer and backwards the other way around. Can this complexity be tamed? Um, you know, what's interesting with that, you know, that, that harmonization challenge that you're talking about, where we have disaggregated, you know, sources of production, uh, and bringing it all into the grid, and then matching that against you know uh, you know load curves and so forth, you know where we have higher demand at certain times of the day, or we may have uh, you know um, uh, weather event that comes through and, and and affects you know let's say grid consumption in one area and, and grid production in another. That that complexity, um, th those investments are being made now, and the technology exists uh, to manage that. But but the challenge is going to be uh, when you talked about electric vehicles and everything. Um, you know, that's going to make a demand that's going to be uh, exponential as a demand on the system. It's it's we're going to have to build it fast. Right. We're going to have to put a grid system in place very, very quickly um, that can support, uh, quite frankly, the same kind of grid that we have in our petroleum grid. Because right now, if you think about it, right, if I'm driving a, a, a gas powered vehicle, um, you know, all of the pipelines that got the crude to the refinery and then, of course, the refinery, uh, then it gets trucked out to these local gas stations and then it's distributed. And then, of course, I can consume it. And so that kind of distributed mindset of I'm going to have an electric vehicle now. I'm going to have to be able to drive from Texas to California or from Houston to Dallas or even across Houston, which feels like, you know, it takes a day to drive across that city sometimes. Um, I've got to have the ability to be able to have the same support and nimble uh, um, um, capability 
uh, to be able to, you know, get power on the go. What does that look like? What is that challenge? That's an element of complexity that we have to address in this grid. So to your point, um, investments are being made in that space. And what I'm talking about when I talk about the design of it, um, do we have to, in our minds, use what we would think would be a classic grid? Or should we take the human bias out of it and explore that design space, create parameters around what we need from this new grid, but then take the bias out and allow the system itself. Um, it, you know, it's not necessarily artificial intelligence. Uh, I would call it augmented intelligence, right? So we're augmenting our capabilities by removing our bias and allowing an exploration uh, that's unemotional by the machine, and then take a look at that, and not just look at a new design, but look several thousands of these configurations. So I'm excited about the investments in these algorithms around design space exploration, what is called, what I would call augmented intelligence versus artificial. But then of course, you've got machine learning that leads to artificial intelligence to act as, as a broker of you know supply and demand across this grid and so forth. So many tiers of discussion we could have around this. I'm just real excited on the design side, which we're talking about today, the ability to come up with unique designs no one's ever thought of, right? And that capability exists today. Uh, John, you mentioned AI. Um, it's petroleum, gas, interesting markets in, in several ways. One is that early adopters on the, uh, on the pricing side, there's a spot market, there's a futures market. There are, there are incentives for people on the pricing side, on, on, on the financial side, to, to model systems, to try and figure out where pricing is going to go. Uh, we're looking at a world now where if consumers are also producers at the same time, and the software has basically been decentralized, it's been commoditized to the point where individuals can trade energy literally. Are we gonna go down a road, do you think, where uh, individual households are gonna be bidding for a certain number of kilowatt hours of power at a certain price, basically, uh, putting in stop loss orders, hedging strategies, basically buying and selling using an AI-based system? Is that gonna be the Wild West? I mean, I, you know, I, you, I, the, the short answer to that is I could see that happening. I think what will end up hap, uh, what we'll see is there'll be an app for that, right? And you'll start to see where uh, communities come together, to your point, uh, and maybe in aggregate, um, they're producing from all of these distributed solar, you know, um, rooftop mounted uh, production capabilities from photovoltaics. Uh, I've actually done a lot of research and, and have seen where because of blockchain, um, there has been discussions around, oh, well, you know, I can have a secure ledger that can aggregate the production from this community, um, and then I can I can actually receive um, payments to um, this community for said production and or, you know, turn it the other way around when they have greater demands, you know, get it from over here. So I think, to your point, there's a strong blockchain play that would be able to wire communities together from these distributed or disaggregated uh, asset bases for you know for production and so forth. So there's already the move afoot around that. So it's it's going to be real exciting to see how that evolves from a financial challenge, if you will, for this industry. But I, it's one I think everyone would be very excited about. Imagine if your house is generating for you you know passive income. Um, while you're remotely working in your office. I mean, you know, how, how great would that be? Yeah, yeah. Uh, John, the elephant in the room on the design engineering side, one which is rarely talked about, is risk. Whenever you put, whenever you render something, whether you, whether you, you click something, you put pencil or paper, essentially, you're, you're going down a road which has risk. Uh, program failure is a risk. 
Design failure is a risk. Reputations are at stake, money's at stake. And risk management is something which, which ha design engineer thinks of subconsciously, if not consciously. Now on the manufacturing side, is it you, you take risk mitigation strategies with multiple sourcing, say, of, of, of critical inputs or critical components, and you design around that, maybe that capability. Maybe you design a circuit so that you can use capacitors from, from three or four different suppliers rather than lock yourself into to, to one particular chain, if you know what I mean. So risk mitigation strategy, AI, model-based systems engineering at this point, if you're thinking about program risk, can you turn to the software to help ameliorate that problem? Well, you know, um, you, you bring up risk. Um, and so I'm, I, might, uh, I might be a little apart from what you're asking about directly. Um, two years ago, uh, in 2018, a colleague of mine, I'll, I'll use his name because if, if he's watching this, he'll, he'll laugh when he hears his name. His name is Emil Pena. He was a former assistant uh, Deputy Secretary um, uh, for the Department of Energy here in the U.S. Um, we've talked a lot about risk, and we've talked a lot about risk mitigation and its impact on energy, its impact on the financials of energy. Um, for example, uh, errors and omissions. Right? When I we we actually aggregated a um, a we had we had a gathering of insurance companies in 2018 here in Houston, Texas. And what we did was we showed them the way in which design is being done today. Like I've said before, you know, from computer-aided design to computer-aided engineering simulation suites to design space exploration, and eventually the machine learning and the augmented intelligence that would result from that. And what we asked them was, are you judging our risk? Are you measuring that risk based on looking backwards at the last 30 years or at today what we're using for technology. And of course, the answer was, well, we don't, we're not engineers. We don't know what you do every day. When we judge what your premiums should be for errors and omissions insurance, for example, we, you know, what's in our minds is what's been going on for the last you know, couple of decades. When we showed them the kind of technologies that exist today for design and how, when you talk about, as you said earlier, the growing volume of regulations, the growing volume of specifications in this industry that are, that are always challenging the design process, we showed them how we hardwire the traceability from regulations into design and we root out errors and omissions that could lead to, as we said earlier, you know, unexpected outages, emissions, explosions, safety and environmental stewardship issues. When we remove that, what does that look like as a premium? When we talk about contingency, right? So when you talk about risk, we talk about contingency. How much money are you setting aside? Idle capital raises your cost of capital. So you have to address you know, all of your sources of impact on your cost of capital. And, and a lot of that is with your risk monetization, right? Your risk quantification and, and the dollars you think you need to set aside to manage that. Well, when we take digital and we demonstrate how we can lower premiums, you can have greater faith in the design and its performance and its safety and environmental stewardship, then that lowers your contingency, which is that much more money that you can then put towards other projects or other investments it dramatically changes your risk posture and thus changes your the, the financial impact and return on investment in all of these digital these digital solutions we're talking about for you know design for the future. One final question: uh, If we could have this conversation again 50 years from now, if we could we could invent a time machine and do that, do you think we'll still be talking about energy in the same way we are now? Will it still be about systems engineering? Will it still be about AI? Well, you know, past is prologue. So, you know, look at look at history. Well, we we saw, 
you know, we've seen industry as has been has been coined in the market, industry 1.0 and 2.0 and 3.0. You know, you've seen you've seen mechanization and then electrification, then automation and now digitalization. So what is that next, you know, word is it, you know, is it decarbonization? Is it, you know, what is that next generation over the next 50 years? In in my mind, you know, you never lose the lessons of the past. We still talk about electrification, right? We still talk about mechanization and improving that, but it's always, you know, done in a in a um, a constantly evolving manner. We will be talking about model-based system, systems engineering. We will be talking about a lot of challenges, but quite frankly, the energy world of tomorrow is going to look vastly different. You know, in a generation from now, for our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren uh, as they grow up. It'll be a very, very different world on how energy is produced and supplied, but the lessons of the past can't be, right? And we're going to see our digital investments continue on this path. As I said, from electrification to automation and on into digitalization, we're gonna continue to see that maturity without losing those lessons of the past. So I get real excited about the ever improving nature of energy. It will be very different though, and it'll be very exciting. John Nixon, Siemens Digital Industry, thanks for joining us on the program today. Thanks for having me. And thank you for joining us on Designing the Future, folks. See you next time.